This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, it's all about pairs protect and survive, black and white, gods and monsters, Trev and Michelle. Buckle your camper van seatbelts, listeners. This ride through the latest Big Finish 7th Doctor trilogy could get a little complicated. been listening to these three audios in preparation for this podcast for the last couple of weeks and I never even thought of the word pair. I really didn't. All I kept thinking was that there's so many uses of the word and. It's got and everywhere, protect and survive, black and white, and, 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 and. Like when you write them all down, you've got all three titles with and in them and then you've also got and to string them together in a sentence. Never thought of the pair thing. Yes, they are. Uh, a t- they're twosomes, Trev. Well, there you go. I've I've learned something already, and we're only thirty seconds into the podcast. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Trev. Good to be with you. Indeed, fantastic to have you here. Um, for for those that love to know, uh, I'm talking to Michelle from across the pond. I'm talking in the middle of the day here in Australia, and you're talking at a very nice, cozy. Oh, what, what do you call it? Mid to late evening. Yes, sure enough. It's actually I'm actually recording during waking hours, which is uh, something I probably <laughs> I can probably count on one hand the times I've recorded during waking hours for this podcast. And I could get really used to this uh, podcasting during my lunch hour type of thing. It, I could really get used to it. But what are we here for today, Michelle? Enough prevaricating. What are we here for today? It's a good thing that we're both awake because we are here to look at this uh, latest Sylvester McCoy trilogy with Big Finish, and it is a doozy. Uh, They really were ambitious when they planned this trilogy, and uh, the stories get quite complicated. There's a lot of self-referencing and a lot of back-referencing. So uh, shall we jump in? I think we need to jump in as quickly as possible while the water's even slightly warm. Before we set out on this uh, uh, Big Finish journey, listeners, we do have to warn you, these reviews will be very spoiler-heavy. Due to the very nature of these audios and what's contained in them, and trying to even review them without spoiling them would be an impossibility. So we must warn you uh, that there will be massive spoilers ahead for you all. Indeed. There's just no way to go at these without uh, talking about how they refer to each other and how they refer back. Let's start with Protect and Survive, which features Hex and Ace, and mostly Hex and Ace. This is actually kind of Dr. Light, isn't it? It is very much a a Big Finish Dr. Light episode, uh, which does concentrate on Hex and Ace. Uh, This being the first of the trilogy, it starts putting in place all these little questions that um, will hopefully get a resolution throughout these three stories. Um, We we find Hex and Ace um, seemingly coming down in, in an idyllic English village, Uh, But as it turns out in the end, no, there's something more sinister afoot and uh, it's something the Doctor's involved with, although we never really hear from him in in any real sense. I I think we do get some flashbacks to some previous adventures in the third episode, Um, but then 
he disappears again until the next story. So it's very much a chance for um, Hex and Ace to, I, I suppose, steal the spotlight. Yes, I think on a practical side, Sylvester McCoy was busy filming The, the Hobbit during the times that these were recorded. But uh, from, mm. from a storyline, this whole idea of where is the Doctor and why has he sort of abandoned his companions to their fate uh, is, a, is a running theme through the first two stories of, of this trilogy. And uh, this does start, as you say, with Ace and Hex landing in this town. It's important to note that they land in the white TARDIS that they have been traveling in since Angel of Scutari. Um, and the TARDIS then promptly disappears, stranding them in this English village uh, where they meet two, two lovely characters, uh, Albert and Peggy, uh, and then get to enjoy going through World War III with them. Yes, this this whole white TARDIS and the upcoming black TARDIS, which we'll talk about. I'm, I'm going to need like a notepad and pencil, Michelle, because... Uh I'm not really much one for keeping, you know, the, the, the big finish plot points in my head, certainly from stories that were, well, at this point, two or three years old, which actually set up that initial white TARDIS. So when they talked about it, I, I just sort of took it on face value and went, oh, OK, they're in a white TARDIS. I can't remember why. I'll probably have to go look it up. But, uh, yeah, it, it does get a lot more complicated later when there are more TARDISes. Uh, Tardi. Indeed. <laughs> and in terms of foreshadowing, you know, we you talked about the uh, the pairs and the titles. Given that part two is called Black and White, you might be well advised to keep track of which color TARDIS you're looking at as you go through this. <laughs> but we'll come to that soon. Um, <laughs> Protect and Survive, I really enjoyed the first two episodes of this one. Um, it, there's, there's a mystery there. The old couple in this little cottage, you know, meandering around. Uh, they're, they're really delightful to listen to. And then the mystery builds and builds and builds um, all the way up to, I think, the end of the second episode where they find out that they're basically two trapped gods or demigods or whatever you want to call them. Elder gods. There. Elder gods. Oh, I knew it was some sort of great god person anyway. Um, but he, they've been trapped there um, by the Doctor and they're, they're furiously trying to get themselves free. Yeah, and interesting, you talked about particularly liking the first two episodes. The first two episodes of this story are unlike anything I have ever listened to in Big Finish, and that is saying quite a bit after the, what must be hundreds of stories I've listened. The first two episodes are quite claustrophobic. Uh, World War Three is coming. The, the, this couple is preparing for it, and Ace and Hex get trapped with them, and it is claustrophobic. It is mm. horrifying. It is harrowing. Uh, and, you know, it's just the four characters, really, but it works extremely well. And I think part of the effectiveness is that they're in a situation that could really happen, that you could imagine happening. So much of Doctor Who is, is so fantastical that, uh, yeah, it's scary in the context of the story. But here they're, they're facing what would they do if, if the bombs were falling now. Uh, and it was very effective. It does work well within that context, definitely. I, I will admit, though, I'm, I'm always a person that misses the Doctor when they're not actually in a story called Doctor Who, Protect and Survive. I, I really do miss having the Doctor there. And I, I always think about a, a first-time Big Finish listener getting on the site and making Protect and Survive their first Big Finish audio purchase. I'm wondering what, what they would think of it, because the Doctor's hardly in it. And that, that kind of disappoints me. I, I, I like having more Doctor in my Doctor Who stories. Yeah, I understand. And in my opinion, this story was strong enough that it carried it without him. But uh, interesting you mentioned the first-time listener. I think, unusually, these three stories are not ones I would recommend to first, 
first-time listeners. No, no. Good as no. no. Yeah. Well, most of the time, I'd say, oh, leap in anywhere. But, uh, boy, these three are probably not the best place to start off on. No. And and like you say, the, the first two episodes are really claustrophobic. They're, 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 they're quite um, filled with tension for the most part. And even the third part um, has, has some quite fantastic moments in it. But at that point, it really started to fall apart for me. Towards the end of the third episode, everything seemed to be coming to a conclusion. And, uh, you know, they were going to be saved and it was all going to be happy and smiles and hugs and kisses all around. But that didn't happen. It, it suddenly rebooted itself, basically, at the end of the third episode. And we spend the fourth episode uh, experiencing Hex and Ace taking the demigod's place in this particular universe. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And for me it would have worked well as a three-episode story because it really seemed like it was coming to a fantastic conclusion. But then the fourth episode just seems to drag so much. It really did for me. I hear what you're saying, and the part I least liked about the story was that, yeah, kind of at the end of that third episode, there is another elder god that comes in and basically whisks the two uh, the two other main characters away. I mean, almost a literal deus ex machina. And mm. that that introduction of that other character totally kind of changing the game bothered me because the game was going so well. And then you are left with Ace and Hex. Now, on the one hand, I agree. They they begin to relive these events over and over, and that gets a little tedious. But on the other hand, when they take the place of Peggy and Albert, they become Peggy and Albert. And so uh, Philip and Sophie get to play these other characters, and they do it brilliantly. Yeah. So on one hand, while the plot was dragging a little, the performances were outstanding. And so I uh, that, that, that carried it along for me. I, I think maybe that's what got it for me. Already having experienced, in essence, three episodes with having no Doctor and only being able to hang on to the characters of Hex and Ace, suddenly being presented with uh, our actors not playing their real characters but actually playing someone else for the majority of episode four uh, tested my patience just a little bit too far. Um, it, it didn't seem like it was Doctor Who anymore because we didn't have any Doctor Who characters really in that fourth episode to cling on to. The story itself stands on its own two feet pretty well. You, you, you don't really need to know a lot of backstory um, for this story to work. Sure, there's stuff about the White Tardis and about the demigods and and uh, or the greater gods or whatever you want to call them. Please don't write in listeners. I'm going to use the word demigods and I don't care. Um, and all the stuff with the Doctor trying to defeat these gods. But, um, yeah, it, it just kind of petered out at the end for me. And uh, knowing that this was the first part of a three-part story um, sort of didn't bode well for our... Next story, which is uh, black and white. Yes, and it's important that at the end of Protect and Survive, it is a black TARDIS that shows up uh, when Ace and Hex need to get out of that situation. And, and as they head into the black TARDIS, they discover that they are not alone in the black TARDIS. They still haven't found the Doctor, but uh, they have found Lysandra and they have found Sally Morgan. Mm, this, this was a story that... Um completely lost me. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't think Big Finish do very well in terms of incredibly complex plotting in audio. I don't think it works well in the audio medium. I think this would have made a fantastic book. You could have a really, really large book that could go into an incredible detail and explain the stuff that was going on a lot more. But when you have to rely on audio, when you have to rely on characters telling you stuff directly and sometimes clumsily, um, this episode 
or this story, I should say, really lost me. Um, it, it takes us all the way back to the time of Beowulf, which again is all tied up with the Doctor's quest to defeat these gods, or a, a god in particular, as we'll find out later. But yeah, I, I don't really know the story of Beowulf, so I didn't really get any interesting parallels between what they were trying to do in the audio and what the real story of Beowulf is. Um, but yeah, I, I spent literally four episodes just sitting there listening to the characters and going, uh-huh, oh yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh that's nice. Uh, it, it just, it, it bamboozled me. And, and uh, you know, for someone like me who, who will describe themselves as a casual Big Finish listener, I enjoy them, but I'm a very casual listener. Mm-hmm. Um, surely it's going to confuse a lot more people that aren't up on every single bit of Doctor Who lore in the Big Finish universe. This is one that you had to pay attention to, and I have to admit I've listened to it twice now. Um, I followed it okay the first time through, and I enjoyed it uh, the first time through. I understood it much, much better the second time through. So if it doesn't turn you off the the first time, I recommend a second listening. I will say that I, I was able to follow from one thing to the next, but I didn't really feel like there was any flow. It was a case of, oh, we're in this area now and we're doing this. We just have to accept that and move on and, and try and grasp what this scene's trying to tell us. I, I never got a flow for the story and things just happened because they happened. Um, I, I never really felt like it was explained enough or I knew enough about the story, both Beowulf and the Back Finish catalogue, to really enjoy this story. In- interesting. I... I have never read Beowulf. It's on my list one of these days, but I understood enough that he was a hero and had probably done heroic things to be able to carry the story along. This is a story where even though there's no doctor, they still split the companions up. They mix the companions up a little bit. And uh, one uh, one set of companion ends up with the white TARDIS in one time zone talking to uh, an older Beowulf. And then the other set of companions ends up in an earlier time zone having earlier adventures with Beowulf uh, which I thought was an intriguing concept you're right it's tricky to pull off on audio but they had sort of a a little audio cue that they would use whenever they uh, shifted from one time zone to the other and I kind of liked the way the playing back and forth worked although you really did have to to pay attention there were elements Mm. of the Beowulf story there's a character Garandel whose name of course gets um, converted to Grendel in in the mythology it was kind of interesting. I guess I'm also someone who loves stories and storytelling, and this story had a storyteller character, actually father and son character, who were sort of the spin doctors for Beowulf and were creating this mythology as the story was going, which I found an interesting take on it. And so to see how that developed at the same time with this kind of larger arc going on in the background about uh, looking for the doctor. Where is the doctor? We have to find the doctor. And why are there two TARDISes? We now know that there is a black TARDIS, the one that uh, the doctor and Lysandra and Sally had been traveling in, and there is a white TARDIS, the one with Ace and Hex and the doctor, and that the doctor's essentially been two-timing the companions. Kind of like an expanded version of those little shorts that were on the new series where the doctor runs off with Riversong while Amy and Rory are asleep. Same thing, only on a much larger scale. Yeah, and and, and we'll probably get to it later when we talk about gods and monsters, but um, probably because I didn't understand most of it, the resolution to the final story didn't really feel like it warranted all this nonsense with companions being split up and black and white TARDISes and baby TARDISes and all all this sort of um, stuff that was going on, it, it, it just 
fell in a shuddering heap for me. One one thing that saved black and white for me um, was was the character of Grundle, who of course becomes Grendel in the Beowulf saga. In the Big Finish universe, Grundle is a I don't know what we called a a camp frog-like alien. <laughs> He's called a Rodelian. A Rodelian. I, I like camp frog-like alien <laughs> a lot better because he, he was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Stuart Milligan, who uh, did, did the voice for this uh, uh, frog creature, was absolutely wonderful. It, it was a joy to listen to every time this uh, uh, creature was on screen. Uh, he's, he's there on the planet basically to uh, make a deal and, all, and also, to, also to scavenge some uh, technology which will... Um, earn him lots of money or prestige with his other um, camp frog-like friends. Um, but yeah, he, he was fantastic and, and saved the middle of black and white for me um, when all the other stuff around it was just so, I don't know, time-consuming and boring. Oh, I, I agree with you, though, about Garandel. He was, uh, like you say, camp over the top, and it's unusual because Typically, I don't like it when Doctor Who gets silly, and and I'm sur- sure that there are folks out there that would say, well, this this character is silly. But for whatever reason, he was charming, and I loved him, mm. and and he he was enjoyable. You know, Stuart Milligan, Stuart Milligan, who played Garandel, played Nixon in uh, Day of the Moon and Impossible Astronaut. And oh, so he did. They of could course. they could not be more different. In terms of character, it was it was really no. really funny. Nixon looks nothing like a frog, <laughs> but yeah, uh, black and white. Um, I don't know. Lots of characters going. Of course, this is what's happening at this part of the story. Oh my goodness, I'm so stupid. This is what's happening, and I just sat there going, "Oh yeah, all right, I'll accept that. Let's let's move on." Yeah, it it just didn't gel for me. And being, you know, the uh, troubled middle child of a three child family. Hmm. Um, probably didn't help. It, it, it didn't have a beginning and it really didn't have an end. Oh, interesting. I, I did enjoy it, but there's one thing I want to ask you about. You mentioned the, the baby TARDIS, the budding TARDIS. We do discover that the black TARDIS is a TARDIS that has been budded by the doctor and, and mm. raised, and there's some fairly sweet scenes of, of the doctor kind of um, mentoring and raising this mm. TARDIS and sending it off on its first journeys, and then you, un- then you understand why the doctor was flying solo with a black TARDIS in stories like Doomsday Quatrain and House of Blue Fire. But then at the end of this story, that TARDIS gets destroyed just because you need two TARDISes to propel you to this kind of nowhere world that we're going to set up for the final part of the the series. And I, I, I know they're going for a darker, more manipulative doctor in this sequence, but I just can't see the doctor growing and raising a TARDIS just to burn it up. Well, yeah, I mean, especially when certainly in this story, you know, the Tardises are very much sentient. They're, they're having ongoing intelligent conversations with the Doctor telepathically. So there's really no doubt that, you know, the Tardises in the Big Finish universe are sentient beings of some sort. Mm-hmm. Certainly something at, at, at the core of the Tardis would qualify it as a, um, you know, living life form of some sort. So, yeah, I would agree with you. I, I didn't know about that exploding... TARDIS bit actually, Michelle, because I didn't get to the end of Black and White. I actually gave up. Oh my and, goodness! And and I skipped straight to Gods and Monsters, hoping that it would redeem itself. Well, you would have a hard time going right into Gods and Monsters because at the end of Black and White, there's an important scene where the Doctor is captured by one of those elder gods and taken away to be imprisoned, where we find him in Gods and Monsters. Well, well, you see, God, Gods and Monsters that that really didn't worry me that much <laughs> because like. Because like Protect and Survive, 
it's explained what's going on. Sure, I didn't understand how the Doctor got there and how Fenric grabbed him and stuff like that, but it, it was done in such a way that I don't think you really need to listen to that previous one. Uh, Gods and Monsters, on the whole, works out pretty well as a standalone story. It's a confusing, uh, continuity-heavy, laboured story, but I think they explain enough within the episodes of Gods and Monsters for anyone who just picks up that audio for the first time. That's still not a good thing because there's still too much going on in Gods and Monsters. There's still too much of, oh, my goodness, Doctor, this is what's happening, and you're just sitting there going and listening going, okay, I'll accept that, let's move on. I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea why this character has suddenly appeared. I have no idea why they're suddenly in a tank. Things just happen, and you're just meant to accept it and get on with the story, and that doesn't make it enjoyable for me. Yeah, interesting. When, when, they, when they take off at the end of uh, Black and White... Uh, and they do have to kind of consume the black TARDIS in order to uh, to propel them. They're going into a place where where they say time vectors negative, spatial coordinates imaginary. So they are going into this world where anything can happen. And of course, you find out eventually that they're on a great big chessboard and and are playing Fenric's game. Um, mm. So so it does allow <laughs> a little more stream of consciousness. And again, having listened to it twice, uh, it made even more sense the second time than it did the first time. This is this is epic in its continuity. Uh, if you have been listening to Big Finish for years and have the ability to remember all the tidbits that have been in there, this weaves together an amazing array of things. Not just from Big Finish. This also ties back, of course, to, to episodes the from the classic, classic series. series. Well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> when, um, what is it, the Prince of Persia or whatever his name was, mentioned the word time storm. I went, oh my goodness, they're tying all the way back to 1987 and Dragonfire. And, you know, they've got characters that have been brought into this universe in the same way that Ace was. And they're tying back to stories like Curse of Fenric, of course, where, you know, the Doctor released... Fenric's hold on Ace basically by defeating Fenric and yeah it, it, it's it's got some fantastic concepts in there but like one of the previous stories from the Colin Baker trilogy The Wrong Doctors it relies on such specific continuity at a certain time in the show's history it is going to confuse a lot of people because they won't know what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> Just to give you some idea of how minute the little continuity references can be in here. There's there's a point at which Fenric is taunting Ace, and he he she says, "Well, why did you pick me?" And he says, "Well, it was always a toss up. It was always a roll of the dice. It was you know, it was either you or this lovelorn motorcycle rider from Wales." Mm, mm, <laughs> I picked that one. Up. That that's clever. That's that that's good for the fans without really having to worry about non-fans are understanding it. Yeah, that yeah. was nice. And, and, and as you go through, there are just as equally clever references back to the Big Finish canon. Uh, but yeah, I'll tell you, the more steeped you are in Big Finish and the show, the more you're going to pick up and enjoy those. And I, as I listened to it a second time, I was, I was impressed by just how meticulous they have been at including those. But as you say, the flip side of that is it could be incomprehensible if you aren't familiar with any of that. Yeah, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the writers just start making this up as they go along, just as much as the Doctor was in the actual story. Um, sure, they... I don't know whether they think they've been clever with all these references or whether they've just been lucky or not. To, to me, the references they make are nice, but they're not something that makes you sit there and go, ah, that's why that happened in that 1987 story, or ah, this is why this happened in Curse of Fenric. I'm not sure Gods and Monsters is that clever, um, which, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, 
but this story left me flat because I think there's too much in it. You know, you need a straightforward adventure. And, and, and I think for me, um, if, if I was to recommend a, a doctor for any new listener to Big Finish, I, I would tell them to leave the seventh doctor till last because he seems to be the only doctor's range that goes for this continuity-heavy mm stuff whereas the other doctors will just give you pretty much straightforward adventures. Yeah, I see what you what you mean and in fact with the continuity I like the ones that are tying together things that they've clearly been seeding over the last year or so like the black and white tardises. I l- don't like it as much when they retcon what clearly was never leading in this direction in the first place. There's a whole sequence, mm. whole sequence of stories in Big Finish, uh, the project stories that deal with the forge. You know, I think it's only in the last couple of those that there's been any hint that these elder gods might be involved. And so when they go back and Fenric says, oh, I've been controlling that from the start, that I don't care for. Uh, it, no. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, stick to the continuity you've been developing. It's a convenient reference they can make because they know it really can't be contradicted. You know, they right. can make this airy-fairy thing saying, oh, I, Fenric, have been manipulating the grand chessboard here for, for a millennia. You can then apply any big finish to that. You can probably even say Fenric took care of Sirens of Time back when Big Finish started and all the way back through... Oh, I'm, you know, I'm sure Doctor's Fenric history. was the one that put out the initial flame in the caves of uh, the Skulls there back in An Unearthly Child. <laughs> <laughs> See, th- that, that sort of stuff, you can say things like that. And while that's nice, there's no real wow moment. There's just a, oh, yeah, all right, okay. There's, there's, not, there's, there's nothing to back it up or to corroborate it, but it's just a thing they can throw in because they can, because no one can say, no, that isn't true. So it's interesting. um, You went into this trilogy, um, perhaps having listened to some of those stories, but not having them real fresh in your memory. What was your overall impression of the trilogy? Yeah, you see, I'm I'm on on the flip side of you in in terms of appreciating continuity references seeded in. I don't like the fact that we are referencing back to two or three-year-old stories in the Big Finish range, because I think fans' memories work a little bit different with the audios as they do with, say, the regular TV series. It's easy to reference something in March 2012 in the first episode of New Doctor Who and then have a payoff 12 weeks later. I don't think it works as well to do something in, well, I don't know, what, July 2010 and have the payoff early 2013 Uh, it it just doesn't work the same way so that leads me back to my whole thoughts on the overall trilogy i think for me and 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 i'll just flat out say it i think this is the worst big finish trilogy i've ever heard in my entire life (laughs) it it just didn't work for me there's too many continuity references there's too many things going on that you just go "Uh uh-huh you're supposed to accept it you know without real any i don't know explanation as to why they're doing it or what's happening or you're expected to know a reference from a companion chronicle of all things from 2011 i mean if big finish are going to be that finicky about continuity references then they're going to lose me because i don't follow every range they do slavishly i don't listen to the companion chronicles because they're not really my cup of tea i know you guys love them but they they don't really work for me i pretty much listen to the main range and the occasional specials they do, and that's it. So, yeah, this this trilogy didn't work for me. It's too confusing. It's too long. It goes off on meandering tangents too often, and it, it's just, it just bored me. It really bored me. What about you, Michelle? 
let's cast a ray of sunshine on onto this otherwise negative review. Well, I will cast a ray of sunshine because I quite enjoyed the trilogy. There are times when it goes too far and gets too complex, and I, I think it, it certainly would probably be difficult for the first-time listener. Uh, and I'm usually one who gives a lot of credit to a first-time listener, but this is tremendously complex. But if you've been listening to, to Big Finish, there are a lot of wonderful uh, intricacies here that are fun to tease out. I don't think it's the greatest thing Big Finish has ever done, but I found I found the whole thing uh, an enjoyable listen. I would not want a steady diet of this. Th- this would need to be something no. that's kind of a something we visit only on occasion, something of this scale. But I give them credit for the ambition here and, and the care, I think, with which it was put together, uh, even if it doesn't work 100% of the time. Uh, I found it really enjoyable. Well, we've been talking about a terribly complex Seventh Doctor trilogy, and maybe we need to lighten up a little bit and go uh, remember what the Seventh Doctor was like on TV. And uh, I understand James and Ian are working with Stephen Elston to to prepare a a special miniseries for us. What do you know about this, Trev? Well, up-to-date listeners to the podcast will have already heard last week's episode where we uh, did the first part of the Seventh Heaven uh, interview with Stephen Elston, who's the organiser of Big Blue Box 2, uh, convention, which was on very recently, um, he's basically sat down with James and watched all the Seventh Doctor stories because Stephen's never seen any before. Staggering, I know, unheard of even, but Stephen had never sat down and watched a Seventh Doctor story before James uh, set this task for him. So Stephen Elston's been reporting back on his experiences watching the Seventh Doctor, and uh, I think Ian actually gets to talk with him this week. He did. Uh, Ian went down to the uh, Stephen Elsden mansions and uh, sat down with him and talked about the next batch of uh, Seventh Doctor stories that uh, Stephen has had the pleasure to watch, and uh, this is what happened. You are merely another Time Lord! Oh, Davros, I am far more than just another Time Lord. Time Lord. This whole area is crawling with armed extraterrestrials, and they are hostile. Same as ever, eh, Brigadier? Welcome to the Candy Kitty. Time Lord, Time Lord, Time Lord. Time Lord. Hello, I'm here with Stephen for the second of our Seventh Heavens series. We've given Stephen a couple of weeks off to recover from Paradise Towers. So, Stephen, are you, are you ready to give your thoughts on the, the last two parts of this series? Yes, yes. Yeah, very uh, mixed bag, I think, you've given me this time around. So, starting off with Delta and the Bannermen, this being, I think, the, f- the, the first three part, proper three-part story since Planet of the Giants. Right, yes. <laughs> so, uh, qu- quite a different tone from the last two. So, what, what were your initial thoughts on this? Well, it's, uh, this is a very curious uh, Doctor Who, quite frankly. I mean, this is... Uh, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say, you know, Doctor Who meets Heidi High. It had a a very, very schizophrenic tone to it, this uh, this, this programme. You had some of, the, some of the actors, some of the characters were almost from a from a hard science fiction show and I talked last time about the the, the hard SF elements to uh, to this season of Doctor Who I thought that Delta and um, Billy were very very strong characters in that sense but they were playing up against everybody else who was spoofing it up 
spoofing it up like there was no tomorrow. And uh, they did feel as if they sort of dropped in from a completely different adventure. If I have got one abiding view of Delta and Bannerman, it was the uneven tone to the to the acting, and I have to put that at the foot of the director, that he didn't actually coach the all of the actors to give a consistent tone in the story. And that, for me, that's, that's what really let this story down. It does swing quite wildly between Gavrock, the evil mercenary who's chewing the scenery for all he's worth, yes, and then the odd American duo of special agents who seem to sort of be having a little adventure all to themselves and are at a completely opposite end of the spectrum of seriousness. Yes, and and, and I found it actually quite confusing the first time that we cut to those uh, those two characters. I mean, we're at the the, the spaceport with, uh, with with Ken Dodd, and then suddenly we're with these two characters. I'm thinking, well, who on earth are these? And uh, initially, there's not much explanation for them. And you don't really get any any sense of uh, their connection to the rest of the show, really. I mean, they just feel as if they're a bit of a a, a nod to maybe an American audience. I mean, though they're, I don't know if they were American actors. They're putting on pretty bad American accents. If they were really American actors, I'm, I'm seeing nods around, so they were American. So I apologise if they're still around. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I thought that the, the, the central story about this woman, this queen being hunted by this uh, group of mercenaries was a very, very strong story. But it was let down by everything else around it, quite frankly. There seems to be gaps in the storytelling. So you get to the second episode and people just start saying, oh, here come the Bannermen, here's Delta, and we have to do all this stuff. No, none of the characters have been told their names no. or where it's come from. It just seems to come out of nowhere. And it's like there's an episode missing where all the exposition happened. Yes, I mean, that, that's one of the things I mean by the uneven tone. I mean, the, um, the, the camp leader for example, completely un- unsurprised that there are suddenly these characters dropping down from outer space into his, into his holiday camp, which did put me in mind as I was watching it. I thought, is this actually our Earth or an alternative Earth where you know, people are aware that there are beings from other planets that come and, uh, come and visit? But yes, absolutely. It just seemed to be, uh, if, not, if not an episode, then certainly a lot of explanation. People are, t- are talking about the Bannerman when they've never heard them described that way. I mean, human characters are calling them the Bannerman. And you think, well, where has that come from? And lots of little things like that that, that, that that jarred and pulled you out of what, a, what could have been quite a strong story. You mentioned earlier on about Billy and Delta and the quality of the acting they did, and I, th- I think they both approached their characters quite strongly. Yeah. But is this the fastest romance in Who since Leela and Aldrin? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I, I was quite amused by the fact that he, uh, you know, he converted to uh, to the uh, uh, to, to, to her race so uh, so rapidly, and uh, she rather conveniently had an outfit for him to wear as well uh, at the uh, at the end of the show. <laughs> I'm not sure quite where that came from, but uh, no, I mean, I think in the in the uh, you know seventy odd minutes of uh, program we had there, I thought they gave quite a touching portrayal of uh, of two characters who are thrown together and. and develop a, a, a connection and of course they've got a lovely uh, well I was going to say a young girl but a you know, teenage girl by the end of the, uh, the program with them as well. Now I know last time you spoke to James about Richard Breyer's performance in Paradise Towers and its alleged stunt casting overtones what did you think of Ken Dodd? Well, of course, again, I, I'd heard of Ken Dodd being in Doctor Who. I'd seen the pictures of, uh, of, of Ken Dodd. Well, he was OK, because what I didn't expect was the rather brutal end that he met rather, rather early on. I mean, shot in the back um, by, by, by Gavrock. So, uh, you know, if you're going to stunt cast and you're going to put Ken Dodd in the programme, kill him off after five minutes. I think that's the, probably the best, uh, the best <laughs> thing you can do. Now, the other interesting thing about this story is the character of Ray, the sort of Welsh tomboy on the motorbike with the leathers. Ray was one of the possible new companions for the Seventh Doctor, and they tried out Ray in one story and Ace in the second story, and obviously they chose to go with Ace. I understand that they actually might have filmed a, a section where 
she went with the Doctor instead because this was going to have been the series finale. How do you think Ray would have worked out as a companion? Yeah, I, I, th- I thought Ray had some some interesting qualities too. I mean, she was quite dynamic. I mean, when she wasn't mooning after Billy, she was getting into the into the thicker things. She was clearly cleaving herself to the Doctor's side through through much of the story. I think having seen obviously now Dragonfire, Sophie Aldred, I think you know from the opening scene just just grabs that program and never lets go. And I don't think uh, you know Ray maybe would have uh, the actress playing Ray maybe would have had that ability to actually grip the story in both hands and and, and run with it. Um, I thought she was a she was a relatively strong character. She was, certainly wasn't by far wasn't the, the the worst of the performances. She played it sort of fairly evenly down the line. I think where you had Billy and Delta very much at the, the hard level, the hard end, you had people like uh, characters like Murray at the, the sort of soft pantomime end and indeed, uh, you know, Ken Dodd. Um, I thought Ray was probably, you know, cutting the middle ground. She wouldn't have been out of, uh, out of keeping maybe in one of, the, one of the New Who stories. But overall, hit or miss? For me, I, I have to say a miss. I think there was too much that was wrong with it. The, 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 the music, uh, we haven't talked about the music. I mean, oh... I don't think I'm ever going to get used to the to the music in this uh, in this series. It was just jarring. Production design, I thought, having had quite strong production design in the first two uh, first two adventures, really let itself down here. I mean, the uh, the Bannerman looked like a, a, a paintballing team that have got lost somewhere. You know, two of them carrying <laughs> these stupid red flags around on their backs. You know, I mean, what's that about? I mean, they're the least the least threatening band of mercenaries that you you've ever seen. Uh, you know, Don Henderson. I, mean, I used to love Don Henderson in the eighties as a characters like Bullman. I thought, you know chewing the, uh, the the raw meat you know and spitting it out at the doctor i thought you know he was uh, he was camping it up but i mean i, I thought he was maybe a, you know he was he was fairly good as the uh, as the lead mercenary but he was let down by his uh, by his gang so um, no I, I, for me actually of the four in this season i think delta and the bannerman for me is is actually the weakest of the four putting aside that negative we go into the last of the series which was dragonfire uh, with the introduction of ace and uh, the the loss of mal so initial thoughts on dragonfire uh, we've talked a bit before about the, the kitchen sink quality uh, to, to, to this uh, this season. I love Dragonfire because of the kitchen sink quality. I love watching Dragonfire and noting all of the references to other science fiction films and TV series that have been thrown into it. And I think somebody was having a, a, a gay old time when they uh, when they worked on this story. I thought Sophie Aldred was amazing. As soon as she's on on screen. She blows poor old Bonnie Langford out of the water, quite frankly. You know, you could have, could have killed Mel off, I think, at that moment. And Ace would have been able to, to, uh, to carry that story on her own. She's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I thought that production design on this was, was ramped up again. I mean, obviously, the, uh, the, the, the creature is a, is, a, is a rip-off of the alien, but a bloody good rip-off. If you're going to rip off the alien, you know, by, by all means, you know, make a, make a good fist of it. All you needed was a few of those uh, brightly lit ice corridors to be uh, dropped into night time, and you would have had a very, very chilling and, uh, and, and creepy uh, story, I think. The, the production team did deliberately go after the alien, and they admit as much on the, the DVD extras. What did you think of the infamous cliffhanger at the end of episode one? <laughs> Well, uh, my first thought was, oh, that was an interesting, uh, you know, it looked like a, a mate shot. I don't know if it was, you know, but um, I thought, well, it's a very odd way to leave the Doctor hanging. And of course, the, the, the great joke of that is that is the next episode where, uh, where, where Glitz suddenly seems to find a, a ledge that's two feet below the Doctor. Well, when the Doctor looks down, there doesn't seem to be anything that is going to stop him falling several miles to his death. I mean, it's, a, you know, a, a great sort of uh, cheat in the cliffhanger in the way that the old uh, 
Buck Rogers uh, series did in the in the 30s. You know, you come up with a cliffhanger and then you introduce this element that you haven't shown before. It suddenly takes all the uh, all the drama away from it. No, it wasn't. It wasn't his uh, his best moment. Let's put it that way. So supposedly, it's, it made a lot more sense when they scripted it, but on the day, the production didn't quite uh, hit the note. So it doesn't make a lot of sense when you watch it that he just decides to randomly hang from a banister over a, a chasm. Yes. Um, um, and, a, and a chasm which, uh, of course, in a subsequent episode, uh, uh, is Ace's uh, little drop-down uh, ladder, uh, which can't have had more than about 30 rungs in it, seems to be enough to get them down to the bottom <laughs> of it. So, <laughs> You mentioned glitz. I looked at this story last summer with Leeson, and one of the things that I found quite odd about it is that Glitz is presented as being sort of like lovable rogue, sort of almost Han Solo-y type character. Mm. But at the beginning of the story, he's selling his crew into slavery and they all end up having their brains wiped and being frozen in a cryogenic <laughs> freezer. That's quite a conflicting message for a lovable rogue, isn't it? Yes, I, I didn't really get the um, get the idea of where he was coming from. I mean, I, I, I understand he's a returning character, but I hadn't seen the original adventure he was in. So, of course, everybody's uh, you know greeting Glitz as if, uh, you know, even even Mel. And I'm thinking, well, when, when has Mel met Glitz? Of course, I now understand that that was in the, the trial of the Time Lord. I think, but no, he, he's sort of presented as a, as a strong character out of the box. But he's a he's an anti-hero, really, isn't he? He's not somebody that you're gonna you're gonna love. Um, which makes it all the all the odder, really, that Mel chooses to go off with him at the end of the uh, end of the adventure. So, I mean, it's got to be the the, the 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 worst farewell scene, I think, for any uh, any any companion, and the rather offhand way that the uh, the Doctor treats her decision, as if you know he's got no real feelings about it. Clearly, you know, they needed to move her out so they could move AC in, and that that was a bit of a bit clunky, I think, the end of that uh, the end of that show. I mean, obviously, where it's left us is great because it's left us with Ace with the Doctor, but I think they could have found a more subtle way of affecting that. Uh, that change of companion. What did you think of Kane, the sort of chilling uh, baddie through this? Yeah, well, he's almost an old school Doctor Who baddie, isn't he? Um, I, I thought he was pretty, pretty good actually. I thought he was a strong villain. His, uh, his 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 mo, this idea about you know freezing people to death, I thought was uh, you know cer- certainly more frightening than. Uh, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze in the Batman and Robin, shall we say? <laughs> well, I mean, are we going to talk about his uh, his death scene? I mean, that's got to be the most graphic death that I've ever seen on uh, on Doctor Who. I think and completely ripped off from Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, but absolutely amazing scene. It was very graphic, but I I do wonder why he did it because he's been told what's going on and he just seems to decide to go and effectively commit suicide by opening the <laughs> opening window. Opening the blinds, yes. Yes, well, there's a lot of... I mean, the motivations are a bit uh, a, a bit fuzzy in here. I mean, uh, I mean, he's... You know, he has some great scenes, Kane. I mean, the the the, the scene where he where he, he blows up the uh, the ship that, uh, you know, has got all these innocent innocent people from, uh, from, from Ice World on it. Very, very chilling. So I think he has, he has some fantastic moments. But yes, yeah, so it's a bit strange that he sort of you know, throws it all away. Um, and this fixation on the uh, on the statue as well. I mean, that's that's wonderful, isn't it? This statue that uh, you know you think, well, who on earth did this woman look like that uh, you know he wants to wants to, wants to preserve her for uh, for, for three thousand years? His backstory was very very muddy. Um, I was confused about you know how long had he been around? You know why is it taking him three thousand years to track the beast down and get the crystal from its head? That isn't really explained. In a maybe an earlier period of Doctor Who, he would have been amazing. It does seem a bit strange that he's been there for three or four thousand years, can't find it, and the doctor rocks up, and about twenty minutes later, he's <laughs> oh, here it is. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of these stories in this era, they've all got flaws and they've all got problems. There's clearly some production problems around that episode one cliffhanger, the Playmobil statue that he's worshiping. For me, I actually thought that the positives outweighed the negatives, though, and and it actually there's a good story in there trying really hard to get out despite the bits that don't quite work. 
Yes, and and as I say, I think lots of lots of points of interest there. But for me, the the, the biggest thing is is, is Ace, and uh, I'm sure you know every fan who's watched this knows all of this. But you know the the the, the Wizard of Oz um, hints in Ace's story as well. You know that her real name's Dorothy, and she was practically whisked to Ice World on a on a tornado. You just think, oh, there's so there's so much going on. There's so much that's been worked into that uh, in, into that storyline. It's just a shame that it doesn't quite gel. On, uh, on on screen but I think the same is true of, of all of those four adventures I think there's a there's a lot going on in each of those four adventures in that first series but um, they're let down somewhere in the in the execution and you know in different ways in each in each story you know I've talked last time about the fact that they they clearly in in broadcasting terms they were up against the uh, the imported science fiction shows for um, the ITV had things like Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica and uh, clearly, you know, Star Wars is a huge influence in all of these uh, adventures in this series. And uh, obviously the Star Wars films are still being released, at, at, well, just finished being released in those uh, at that time. So I think there's a lot that the production, design, uh, production team need to do to make Doctor Who relevant to science fiction fans, which I think they've worked in, maybe slightly to the detriment of what Doctor Who fans want. Um, and maybe that's why this season isn't as revered by uh, by many fans of the doctor i think if you look at it on a pure science fiction level there's a lot going on on a doctor who level it's you know not going to be the strongest season um other than delta than delta and the bannerman I, even at 70 minutes of uh, 75 minutes i found that a real chore i have to say watching delta and the bannerman but the uh, the other three adventures i, I really enjoyed them and the I, the fact that there is a whole adventures of well lots of whole adventures of doctor who i've never seen but you know a whole doctor that i'd never seen i mean it was it was fascinating to to dive back into that um, and I have to say, I'm very much looking forward to the next season, which, of course, was for the uh, the 25th anniversary of uh, of Doctor Who. And I know there are episodes like uh, Remembrance of the Daleks and Silver Nemesis that I'm very much looking forward to. I hope I'm not going to be disappointed. Well, indeed, Remembrance of the Daleks will be on the, the next edition of Seventh so, Heaven. And we'll be back in a few weeks' time to, to look at that story and that series. So thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Ian. Well, what a neat experience to be able to come fresh to the Seventh Doctor after all these years. I have to admit, I, I did quite a bit of that myself this year, watching several of the Seventh Doctor stories for the first time, and I've still got one or two that I haven't yet seen, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, there'll, there'll be more parts coming up uh, in the Seventh Heaven series with Stephen um, as he continues his uh, wonderful trek through the uh, Seventh Doctor televised universe. So keep an eye and ear and nose and whatever out for them uh, in the near future. Well, Trev, it's been great recording with you. It seems like it's been a long time since we had the chance to chat. Indeed. It it doesn't happen very often. Like I said, I could really get used to this uh, recording in daylight with a nice bit of lunch beside me. I think we'll have to do this more often. Fantastic. All right. Well, until next week, ladies and gentlemen, uh, send in your thoughts on the Big Finish audios we reviewed today. Feedback at thedoctorpodcast.com. Send in your thoughts on the uh, Stephen Elsden uh, reviews, Seventh Heaven reviews. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about Stephen's first impressions of the Seventh Doctor. And also, don't forget, if you're not a fan of us on Facebook, then go be a fan of us because there's exclusive Doctor Who podcast content that we only publish on our uh, Facebook feed. Basically, the uh, visits James and co have made to the uh, British Film Institute screenings over the last couple of months where they've gone to see uh, Mind of Evil and Tomb of the Cybermen and whatever. We've done little uh, on-set reviews and reports of each event that's been happening over at the British Film Institute. So get onto our Facebook page and check them out. You will not be disappointed. All right, Michelle, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Talk with you later. That was the Doctor Who podcast. 
which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. The gods can't interfere directly in the workings of our mortal realm. Uh-huh. It's not good sport. Oh, yeah. Wayland was using us to unleash its energies. Me, uh-huh. you, the captain. And Nimrod. Don't forget Nimrod. Uh-huh. That was all in the future. That didn't happen. Because uh-huh. the shield never ended up in Nimrod's hands, did it? Because oh, we that's took nice. it away. Back in Beowulf's time, we brought the shield. Oh, yeah. And threw the game into disarray. Ironic. Fenric possessed uh-huh. the shield's odour. But he couldn't possess the shield. Uh-huh. Why? Because for now, only Wayland's pieces can see it, let alone take it. Oh, that's nice. Fenric can only take it if he wins. Uh-huh. Then Fenric was playing with us by showing us that future. I imagine he uh-huh. wanted to turn you against Wayland so that Wayland would lose and deliver him the shield. Hang about. Uh-huh. If Wayland wants to destroy the universe... Oh, that's and nice. And Fenric is fighting... Yes. What does that make you do? Oh, yeah.